The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Please take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to begin in Ephesians 1, but we're going to be looking actually at a bunch of different texts, even at certain points within the sermon, kind of rifling to different passages uh, throughout the New Testament. So we're actually going to have several of those up behind me on the screen as we go along this morning. But this morning we're going to begin a short series anyway for the next couple of months, which I hope will be a very fruitful study on the church. So we're taking a break from uh, the book of Matthew in order to have Palm Sunday and then of course Easter weekend thought we'd take a little bit more of a break in order to address something that I've been thinking about a little bit recently, specifically in terms of the church. So we're going to be looking at different doctrine pertaining to church, different practicalities uh, referring to the church as well. But as we begin this short series, I want to make it very clear from the outset what I believe about the church. And that is the church is the single most important institution on the face of the planet. It is the single most important institution on the face of the planet. For the last 2,000 years and more, nations have come and gone. The church has remained, right? Institutions have, have risen and they have fallen. Yet the church remains. So many different groups and clubs and associations and so forth. They've risen, they've run their course and they die, yet the church Remains. Is this not even in itself a great testament to the fact that God is who the Bible says that He is? And the church remains not because its leaders, its earthly leaders, are particularly impressive. God has faithfully cared for the church for these thousands of years, and He will continue to care for the church until Jesus comes back in order to get her. And so the church, again, is not impressive because its earthly leaders are impressive. The church is impressive because her God is impressive. And so throughout this short series, my goal is to take texts from all areas of the Bible, all areas of Scripture, in order to show the fact that this institution of the church is great and glorious and beautiful and all part of God's plan. We're going to look at some fundamental questions. Like, what is the church? Very simple. That's what we're going to look at this morning. What is the church? What should churches do? What should the church's mission be? How does a church function? What is biblical church leadership? Is church membership an actually biblical doctrine or a biblical tenet? And many other questions like this we're going to try to answer within this series. Because if God is faithful, and if He cares for His church... And he has provided information in the Bible pertaining to the church. Then we should be extremely careful to do all that he has said for us to do within the pages of the Bible in regard to being a biblical church. Are you with me on that? That if we're going to be the church of God, that we had better be doing what the word of God tells us to do. Correct? We don't like to talk about it because it... it, It sounds kind of judgmental, but it is very possible to do church in a way that is not biblical. 
right? As a pastor, it's a temptation for me to not do what's biblical, but to do what I think works. Or to maybe do what is easy instead of doing what is biblical. Or to do maybe even what is attractional, but is not biblical. The, the tendency of, I think, many churches, many pastors, is to become highly pragmatic in the way that we do things. So the reason that we do what we do is very simply because it works. Or because people like it. Or because it gets people into the door, so therefore it must be good and right and God must think that it's a great idea. I looked through my sermon archives and saw that the first sermon that I ever actually preached here was in January of 2014. And actually we looked at the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 20 to 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the, in the, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So is this not the goal? Is this not the goal that we have as the church? That to Him be the glory in all that we say and do within the church. We are not here to bring ourselves glory. We are not here to do things in a way that pleases us. We are here to do things in a way that pleases God. We are here to bring Him glory. And God will receive glory. Throughout all generations, forever and ever. And this is very important. The church does not exist for the glory of herself. The church exists for the glory of God. So if the church exists for the glory of God, if that's kind of a foundational premise that we are going to have, that the church exists for God's glory, when and where was the idea for the church ever conceived? When did the idea of the church ever pop up? Was the church some sort of late innovation by God? He creates the world and he sees that, oh, you know, I think I'm going to have a church and I'm going to, no, it's not that at all. The church was thought of before the foundation of the world was laid. So even before creation, before time, God had determined that the church would exist. And so this brings us to our passage that I ask you to open to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in verse 4, to to kind of boil some of this down, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And you kind of notice a connection throughout this passage that he talks about the the being chosen and being predestined and how this connects to the purpose of his will, but then it connects to, to the praise of his glorious grace. So this isn't some stuffy doctrine that Paul is articulating here. This is something that that gives glory to God, that is all to his praise and all to God's glory. It's very easy, again, to think of words like this, like predestined and adoption and election and foreknowledge and and those kinds of words, and that, that they're simply made up by these stuffy theologians that are sitting in armchairs just kind of thinking of hard words to make the church have to memorize hard words, and then nobody knows what we're talking about when we use the word predestined. But the word predestined is a Bible word. This is a Bible word. Paul is blessing God for these great truths. That God the Father truly chose us before the foundation of the world. And admittedly, and even if I ask for a raise of hands, I think as Christians we get a little squirrely around the idea of election. It it kind of rubs us the wrong way. But Paul, could he be any more clear within this passage? God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now we could get together and we could talk about the ramifications of these things, how it all works out, how it compares to other passages, but could Paul be any more clear here within Ephesians chapter 1? That God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's what we're looking at specifically, the before the foundation of the world aspect. When was the church thought of before the foundation of the world? Another text up on the screen, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised when? Before the ages began. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and his grace, which he gave us in Christ when? Before the ages began. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We used to sing, sing a song when I grew up. There's a new name written down in glory. No, there was never a new name written down in time. All the names that were written in the book of life were written when? Before the foundation of the world. Finally, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so I labor this point, and I draw out this point from all of these different passages to see that the church is of utmost importance to God because the church was thought of before the foundations of the world were ever even laid. This is incredible. That these people whom he had set his affection upon, they make up his bride. They make up his body. 
They are his royal priesthood. They are the saints. They are the called. And knowing, and again, the practical ramifications of something like this kind of doctrine, knowing that God set his heart upon you before the foundation of the world is an incredible thought and really should be stoking our affections for him. This should not make us feel cold and dusty and dry. These kinds of doctrines should really stoke the flames within our soul, knowing that God looked upon us and he set his love upon us and he and he decided that he would love us and care for us and do all things for us in Christ. It has nothing to do with how good you are. It has nothing to do with how intelligent you are. It has nothing to do with how impressing to God you are or getting into God's good graces. It simply depended on God setting his love and grace toward you and redeeming you for himself. So when was the idea of the church ever conceived? Before the foundations of the world. The clear purpose of the church, though, in light of that, is to bring glory to God. God called the church before the foundations of the world to bring glory to himself. The church exists in time to do what? To bring God glory. And the church will forever rule and reign with Christ. To do what? To bring God glory. You were made to bring glory to God. The church was established to bring glory to God. And even as time begins... So that happens out of time, right? Before time. However that works. Good. Then God creates the world. Creates man. You come up to Genesis chapter 12. And you see that God enters into a relationship with a man named Abraham. And he makes promises to Abraham where he says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishon- and him who dishonors you I will curse. And look at this. And in you all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God promises Abraham that he is going to make of him a great nation. And he will bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham. So, so get this. Not just Jewish families... He is going to bless all the families of the earth through this man, Abraham. In Sunday school this morning, we looked at this within the book of Exodus. And how God enters into this covenant with the Jews, with the people of Israel, correct? And then what ends up happening is he says that this is going to be a testament. This is going to be a testimony to all of the other nations. That, that, that the nation of Israel and that God have this relationship and that God has given His commandments to the Jews and this is going to be a testimony to all of the other nations. And you see that very clearly with the Egyptians, correct? They're pulled out of the land and of course the Egyptians know their God is God, right? And then all of the other nations begin to hear the Jews, the Jews God He is the true God. And they begin to hear all of these things that God has done for the people. So this relationship between the Jews and God was going to be a testimony to all of these people. But there was a further extension in regards to what he says to Abraham here. Paul picks this theme up in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is, this is incredible. So before the foundation of the world, God did what he did. 
Time begins, Genesis chapter 12. He makes his promises. What Paul says that he actually gives the gospel to Abraham. That all of the families of the earth would be blessed as a result of these promises that he gives to Abraham. Thousands of years before the New Testament church even begins. And all of those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. So these promises even that God gives Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 point forward to what God is going to do throughout all of the nations with the release of the gospel. So even as we've been looking in the book of Matthew, and this, Jesus is preaching this message of the kingdom, and then he gives them the great commission in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is the release of the gospel to spread into all of the nations so that all the families of the earth could be blessed and could have faith in the gospel, the same gospel that Abraham himself believed in and had faith in. Thus we can all be declared righteous as a result of this belief. So this is, this is absolutely incredible. These two aspects of the church that we need to keep in mind though as a result of all of this, as a result of God's decision before the foundation of the world, as a result of his promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed, there are two aspects of the church that we need to keep in mind as we read the Bible. And the first is that the church is universal and that the church is local. I watched a humorous video of a pastor, and I think one of you might have sent it to me, uh, where he told this story about how he was on an airplane. He gets on this airplane and he sits down next to this lady and they begin to you know, have that kind of airplane banter back and forth. Just begin chatting about your lives. And so eventually the conversation drifts toward what each of them do for a living. And so the lady asked the pastor, well, what do you do for a living? And instead of saying, well, I'm a pastor, this is what he said. He said, I work for a global enterprise. We've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. We've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. We do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. We do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. Basically, we look after people from birth to death, and we deal in the area of behavioral alteration. And so the lady, of course, she's like dumbfounded at this response that this pastor gives to her. And she basically screams out, wow, what in the world is this called? She wants to know what kind of business, what kind of enterprise does this sort of work? And the man simply responds, it's called the church. And this is true. That the church is quite literally a global enterprise. And it is made up of all of those who are true believers, true followers of Jesus Christ. So if you are a believer here today and you trust in Christ and what he has done on the cross of Calvary, then you are a part of this great universal church. In fact, it's more than that. The universal church or is the total body of Christ made up of all the saints who have gone before us, all of the saints who are living now, and all the saints who will come after us. And the head of this great mass of people, this great universal body, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 say this, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus Christ is the head and we are the body. Another image that Jesus gives of the church is being the bride in Ephesians chapter 5. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus is the groom of the church. The church submits to Jesus and he gives himself for the church. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her. Why? Why does he do all of this? So that he can present her to himself without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle or any such thing. He totally cares for his church. But he not only cares for his church, he has promised that he will build his church in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So local churches may rise and fall, but the universal church of God will be built by Jesus, it will be cared for by Jesus, and it will be protected by Jesus. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 3.21, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout how many generations? Throughout all generations. So the church will remain forever as the universal church throughout all generations with the singular goal of bringing God glory. The permanence of the church is as sure as the permanence of Christ because he has personally secured her future. One day we will be with him as his bride when all this earthly stuff is done with. We are going to be with him as the total body of Christ whom he has loved and redeemed. Revelation 19 says this, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the church was conceived in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. The church would be blessed as the promises of Abraham went forward. They'd be blessed um, as a result of those promises spoken to him. And the universal church is made up of all of the saints, past, present, and future. And we will worship him in glory forever and ever as his Bride, all of, all of this has been secured for us from the very beginning, before time, in time, and out time again. It all has been secured us for us by God. But this universal church that we've talked about is manifested in many local churches. Churches like Windsor Christian Fellowship. Groups of people out of the universal church that have decided to, to bind themselves together, to covenant together, and to do the ministry that God has called us to do. So you may notice on the screen the word is ecclesia. And some of you may be wondering, well, I guess that probably refers to the church in some way, but ecclesia means the church. It is the Greek word for church and is used specifically over 100 times to refer to the church. And so what it means is a called out assembly. So you can even consider that in the words or from before time where God called out a mass of people. But the little churches are all little called out groups that, again, are meant to do the work of God. Ecclesiology is the study of the church, and it comes from this word, ecclesia. 
But an ecclesia, again, is a called out assembly or a called out community of God. A, a group of people who gather together to worship through the preaching of God's word, through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. A, a pastor in D.C. named Mark Dever puts it this way. The church is the gospel made visible. So the gospel is preached throughout a community. And God begins to save more and more individuals who then become part of the local church, thus making visible the gospel. The church being made of the the gospel-believing, baptized believers. And that's what an ecclesia is. That's what a church is. It's a group of people called by God through the gospel, and then they then join together as a visible manifestation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You probably see this most clearly even within the book of Acts. Paul goes into all of these cities. The disciples are going all over the place and they're preaching the gospel message. People begin to trust in Christ. And so what does Paul do? He leaves men like Timothy and Titus within these communities in order to establish the church, to continue preaching the gospel, to continue uh, administering the Lord's Supper, and to continue baptizing people, and to establish deacons and elders within the local church. So you see, all of these people that are saved as the result of the preaching of the gospel, they're immediately added to that great universal church. But then they begin funneling into these local assemblies, these ecclesias within these different cities. So however many years ago, a couple hundred years ago, even at this church, I don't have the history, but Christians decided, they would gotten saved, and they decided to form a church together, to covenant with one another, to be a church, and we are still here a couple hundred years later. But the church is currently what it has been, a group of people called by God to salvation, who then gather to hear the Lord's word being preached and to participate in the ordinances together. Even within Paul's letters that he writes, you see that most of the letters he writes are to churches, right? So he writes to the church at Rome, to the church in Ephesus and Corinth and Galatia and Colossae and Philippi and Thessalonica. So the concern, the very clear concern of Paul throughout the New Testament is for whom? It's for the church. That these churches that have been established through the preaching of his gospel continue to walk in the new life that they have been given. You read through these letters and you get a real weight of the seriousness of the interactions of that local church. We went through the book of Galatians a couple years ago. And my goodness, the way that he talks to this church, he is so dead serious that they get the gospel right. And that they don't allow these false teachers to continue funneling into their church and destroying their church. You read the book of 1 Corinthians and he's addressing this church that has all of these problems. This man who's sleeping with his stepmother and all of these issues that they're dealing with as a church. And so he goes in and he tells them, all of this needs to stop. His concern is for the local church. He cares about the church. He's an apostle of the church. And he's commanding them to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. So many Christians have a cavalier attitude toward the church. We just kind of assume that whatever we do in worship, and that whatever we do in our ministries, or whatever we do in our leadership, or whatever we do, is simply going to just be accepted by God. Because we say that we believe in Jesus, we say that we love God, and and so everything's just kind of accepted. But if our intent 
is that God receives the glory out of all that we say and do as a church, then we should reflect the word in how we conduct ourselves and our services and our ministries and our relationships to one another. There is such a great practicality to all of this. What happens when a church loses its hold of being biblical? What happens when an individual loses his or her hold on being biblical? How many churches are trying to be relevant and in their desperate attempts to get people into their church building, they're supporting the abominations of our time? How many more churches, even gospel-preaching churches, literally care more about the color of the carpet than the unsaved person that lives next door to them? Where we care more about being right in some small nuance of doctrine than caring for caring and loving on the widows of the church. Where we literally, we don't say it, but we really do. We care more about our opinion than about God's opinion. All of this causes a great deal of detraction from the gospel, from the church. When Christians lose their hold on being biblical, the gospel is compromised individually and as a church. When our grip of on the word of God is loosened, we compromise. We begin to tend toward pragmatism. We begin to be open to all kinds of things that God in his word has clearly said no. Let me close with an illustration from a well-known preacher that serves the point of churches losing their grip on what the Bible has to say and becoming pragmatic and compromising the gospel. This is what he said. I have a bride a wife, and she is precious to me. Let's say I go on a long journey and I leave a few men in charge of the care of my wife. Let's say that she's a simple woman with a simple beauty and inward pleasantness about her. She is unsoiled, well-protected, pure, even a bit naive because she knows nothing of this knowledge of good and evil. And I leave her with a group of men, and while I am gone, they decide that she is not attractive." And so they dress her in the most gaudy fashion. They paint her face. They cover her with sensuality. And then they parade her back and forth before carnal men in order to attract them into something that they are doing. When I come back, I'll deal with those men. That's exactly what God is going to do. Taking the gospel, taking the church of Jesus Christ, and dressing it like Vanity Fair in order to attract carnal men. Taking the beautiful, glorious gospel of our blessed God and repackaging it for the 21st century? Taking the church of Jesus Christ and dressing her in a wardrobe of a prostitute so that carnal men will be attracted to her? You do not think that Christ, when he comes back, will deal with them? He will deal with them, and they need to repent now. Jesus Christ has left his beautiful bride on planet Earth, and he is going to come back for her. How are we dressing her? How are we treating her? Do we dress the church up to attract the carnal stares of the ungodly? Are we turning her into something that the groom does not want her to be turned into? Or are we doing church and being church and functioning as the church in a way that is glorifying to the groom? God, I pray that you'll help us to do this. I pray that you will help us 
to see any way in which we are dressing up your church and doing church in a way that is actually ungodly. Open our eyes to pragmatism. Help us to see where we, even as a church body, need to change. Help us to be the kind of church that is in accordance with your word. We want to do all of this for your glory. We want to do this all for the glory of our groom who we anticipate and we can't wait to see. We pray that by your spirit and your word that you will continue to to wash us and to cleanse us and to rid us of these wrinkles and blemishes that we have. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.